Take out again your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7. And we will be reading verses 37 through 52. John 7, 37 through 52. John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the Lord of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray that we may glean your truth today. Help us to understand and apply your truth. Be with this your servant. Uh, Pray that I'm able to do justice to this text And that we may see Christ today and give him glory. Thank you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, Old Testament is filled with wonderful pictures which point us to Christ. Um, I wasn't in your Sunday school uh, today, but I think at least uh, Isaiah 55 was one of the texts that you uh, dealt with. Uh, We read from Ezekiel chapter 47. There's plenty of other places too. Uh, in, In the connections that we see with Christ in the Old Testament, in, in Jesus, very particularly here at the Feast of Booths, connecting himself uh, to the things that were promised there. It's just really marvelous to see. And hopefully we can uh, really come to a great understanding of what Jesus is doing here, what he's saying, and in the end, really trusting in him and having affections for him grow. And John chapter 7 has recorded for us the events 
which surround Jesus' going up to the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. You may recall previously that this feast commemorated God's provision for his people during their wilderness wanderings after uh, their exodus from Egypt. During the course of the feast, there are two significant ceremonies which were performed by the priests at the temple. One had to do with water, and the other had to do with light. Both of these ceremonies are drawn on by Jesus in the course of his teaching here, and also in chapter 8, starting in verse 12. Now, drawing on the water rite, Jesus said that he provides living water to those who believe in him. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in chapter 8, verse 12, drawing on the light ceremony of the feast, Jesus said that he is the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus draws on these two ceremonies, uh, the water ceremony and the light ceremony. Well, of course, we will look at the the last one, the light ceremony at another time. But in both cases, again, Jesus is drawing on Old Testament themes and on the present celebration of this feast. And he's inviting listeners to trust in him and to believe in him. And so he's connecting himself with God's covenant promises. All who believe will have life. They will know the truth. No longer will they walk in darkness. They will be set free from bondage to sin, just as the children of Israel had been set free during the exodus from Egypt. Notice that it is the thirsty who are called to come. It is those living in darkness who are called to come. Everyone falls into those categories. Everyone is spiritually thirsty. Everyone is in darkness without Christ. Everyone falls into these two categories. This is who Jesus is inviting to come. But one must also uh, perceive their need. God is, is willing to pour out His grace of salvation. And one must come. One must believe. As clear as these connections might be, however... Uh, and much can be said on this in terms of what Jesus said and did. The words and deeds of Jesus divided the people of Jerusalem. We've seen this already. We see this in our current passage. There were warrants out for his arrest. People were questioning whether he was the Messiah or not. And even the temple police who are sent out to arrest him are awed by Jesus. But mere intellectual assent is not faith. We've seen this with many people. And there's many people we've already seen who who liked what Jesus uh, had to offer. Those who received the bread, the feeding of the 5,000. They they liked what Jesus had to offer, but he was not really the Messiah that they wanted. And so we now come in the narrative of John to this last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. We're sort of in the middle of that. We have been for several weeks now. And we actually will be. Uh, for several more, with the exception of that, uh, that first section of chapter 8. That's sort of an aside uh, in many senses. So I'll, I'll preach on that next, next week. Uh, but <clears throat> Jesus, you may remember from previously, that Jesus had come in the middle of the feast. And he had come secretly. 
before he then, in the middle of the feast, uh, stood up in the temple and began to teach. Now, as I've already mentioned, there were arrest warrants for, for him. There were people who were also seeking to kill him. In the last section, as the officers were being dispatched to arrest him, Jesus ended his speech by saying, in John chapter 7, verse 33, I will be with you a little longer, and then, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. Well, Jesus, of course, is speaking about uh, specifically of his ascension, which was to, occur, was to occur after his death and after the resurrection. But the time for his arrest and time for his death had not yet come. And so no one laid a hand on him. And so these officials who were seeking to seize Jesus were not able to do that. And so, you know, after all this, though it's possible that Jesus uh, kept something of a, a lower profile. Uh, but here we see that it picks up again. It's the last day of the feast. So he began teaching in the middle. Now here we are on the last day of this feast. John calls it the great day. Now, one part of the ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles, as I, I've already mentioned, this is, was a water-pouring rite. At dawn during the feast, the priests would take water from the pool of Siloam and bring it to the temple in golden vessels. And as they approached the water gate, the trumpets would blast, the priests around the altar would sing Psalm 118, which was our call to worship this morning, at least the first part of it. They would sing Psalm 118, and then the water, along with the wine from the drink offering, would both be poured out onto the altar. And perhaps it was at this point, during that ceremony, that Jesus stands up and cries out with a loud voice, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Think about the symbolism of that. As they've, as they've gone through this rite. And Jesus says this. The words, if anyone thirsts, should bring to mind Isaiah 55, which was talked about during Sunday school. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, there are many other Old Testament passages which this pronouncement uh, would, would bring to mind. Connections to the water rite would also bring to mind, for instance, Zechariah chapter 14, which was typically read on the first day of the Feast of Booths. Uh, they would read Zechariah chapter 14 as a part of their liturgy. In, in Zechariah, the prophet encourages the people to go and celebrate the Feast of Booths. To remember God's salvation for them. In fact, he warns them, those who failed to, to celebrate the feast would not receive rain. And rain is important because rain is needed for crops. Rain is needed to reap a harvest. In addition, there's Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Ezekiel chapter 47, which we read for our Old Testament reading, where water is issuing forth from out of the temple. And it's becoming a great river that cannot be crossed. And, and around that river, is, it's lush with wildlife and with trees. 
Each of these passages informs something of the, the liturgy of the water ceremony, which we should point out, by the way, was not prescribed in the Old Testament law, but has its roots several hundred years before the coming of Christ. So it informs those, but Jesus' pronouncement makes all of it very clear because it all applies to him. All of this applies to him. He himself is the fulfillment of the Feast of Booze. He is the one that this looks forward to. In fact, all of the Exodus points to Christ, doesn't it? The one who had come to rescue his people Isaiah invites the thirsty to come to drink from the waters. And Jesus announces, Jesus announces that he is the one who provides that water. He is the one who provides life. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see the picture. You think about that picture from from Ezekiel chapter 47, the the temple flowing forth. Jesus is offering this flowing river of living water. And so any confusion of the source of the river of living water is clarified then in verse 39. It is the Spirit of God that is the source. God Himself, His Spirit is the source. Here again we see reference to previous teachings of Jesus. Being born again or being born from above and being born of water and spirit. You see how, again, all of these things begin to connect together. And so what is Jesus offering as he cries out? Well, Jesus is offering salvation. He's offering salvation by faith. From him flow rivers of living water. He's sending, he will send forth his spirit. Now, water represents life. Without water... You have death, right? Things don't, you know, if you visit a desert, uh, you know, if you don't get a lot of water, you're not going to have the lush green that we enjoy in the Ozarks, right? Or if we have a drought, everything's kind of brown. Water represents life. Here, Jesus is referring to eternal life, living water, eternal life. God himself is the fount of all life. This is clear uh, from the creation account and from the prophets who saw the rivers flowing out of the foundations of the temple. Jesus is declaring here that He is in fact the source of life. He is the source of eternal life and salvation. Both, he's the source both of physical life as, as the Creator God and of spiritual life as our Redeemer. He is the fount from which the rivers of life Spiritual life flow. He is the temple whose sacrifice brings forth life to those who have faith in Him. Through Him, those who are dead in their sins are transformed to new creatures, are made alive together again in Christ. This, beloved congregation, is the grace and mercy of God. Flowing from Jesus, flowing into His people is eternal life, abundant life. True Full. And all that the Feast of Booths had prefigured had found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is why he uses the occasion he does. This is the point that he's making. This is the point John wants us to understand. He is the Son of God. The people of God in days past had been led out of bondage in Egypt, having been brought forth through the parted Red Sea, led by the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And their descendants were to live in booze for a week in order to remember what God had done for them in those, all those years ago. 
Their creator and their God had now tabernacled with them. He took on flesh. He had come, was born as a man, and he had come to bring life and light. Two connections made here as it relates to the festival, this Feast of Booths. Jesus' sacrifice at the cross will pay the penalty for sin. His resurrection will bring new life. And at his ascension, he would send his spirit to his people until he returns again, illumining them to all truth. Now the reader of John will remember that Jesus had actually on another occasion offered living water. You you remember he, in speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, Here, though, he is offering this living water in a more public fashion, inviting the masses to come to him and to drink deeply from this river. He offers living water. Jesus invites the people of Jerusalem to come to him by faith and to receive salvation that they may also receive the Spirit. Again, this is made clear in verse 39. Now, this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, it is the Spirit of God who causes the sinner to be born again, or to be born from above. But at this point in redemptive history, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, had not yet been given in the same way that it would be seen today. That hadn't happened yet. Jesus hadn't yet been glorified. He hadn't died yet. He hadn't been ascended into glory after the resurrection. But just because the Spirit hadn't yet been given doesn't mean the Spirit wasn't acting upon, upon people. The Spirit was at work. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we see the operation of the Holy Spirit in anointing the prophets and the priests and in the kings. And the Spirit empowered the work of men like Elijah. The Spirit empowered men like Moses and Samson. It's the Holy Spirit who transformed the hearts of unbelievers such that they became the people of God. And this was true in the Old Covenant as well as in the New. The Holy Spirit must necessarily regenerate the hearts of men so that they can believe and be saved. This is the work of the Spirit. This is what it is to be born from above. One cannot be saved apart from the operation of the Spirit upon their hearts. So what Jesus is doing here then is giving the outward call of the gospel. The outward call of the gospel is something you and I can do too. Calling people to repent of their sin, believe in Christ. He's inviting the people of Jerusalem to come to Him for salvation. And then He would pour out His Spirit upon them, the fullness of which would be future still. Which is why John adds a disclaimer that he does. The Spirit would come after the glorification of the Son. When Christ has been lifted up and returns again to the Father. And the Spirit, we know, if we, if we uh, read in, in the book of Acts, the Spirit was given to the people on the day of Pentecost. And so now, uh, and in our own day, the Spirit is given to people And the Spirit's chief ministry is to apply the work of the Son and to help believers to be fruitful in their walk with Christ. Now, when the crowds heard 
Jesus' invitation to come and drink of the living water that he offers, verse 40, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Some of them said he's the prophet. Some, though, said this is the Christ. And then there were still others who questioned whether Christ was to come from Galilee. And so just like when, the, when Jesus had fed the crowds in the wilderness, some immediately thought that he must be the prophet like Moses. Ah, here's the one Moses had been spoken of, the one who's like Moses. And they, prob- they may have connected, uh, of course, in the, in, the, uh, in the wilderness, they connected the miracle of the bread and the manna in the wilderness. We, it's not really clear why they would connect uh, where, why they would connect Jesus and Moses here, other than perhaps the Exodus was already on their minds because of the feast. But there are others, so there are some who said, "Well, this is the prophet that Moses had promised." Others said, "Ah, Jesus must be the Christ. This is the Messiah who had been promised." Now, for the Christian, it's difficult for us to divide the differences between the prophet promised by Moses and the Messianic Christ. Because for us, both titles refer to the same person, right? So for the Christian, we say, well, yeah, that's the same thing. You may wonder, how is this a division among the people? But in the first century, these ideas were divided. They they weren't referring to the same thing. People thought of them very differently. And so there were some who saw in Jesus... Uh, the, the, uh, they saw in him the expectations found in the Messiah. Some only saw the expectations they saw in the prophet that was promised by Moses. They thought of those as two separate things. But there were others still who were not so sure either way. And they questioned, well, if he's the Messiah, if he's the Christ, uh, well, he's coming from Galilee. This doesn't, this doesn't fit our expectations. Verse 42. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now, one thing that is clear to us is that these skeptical people had absolutely no idea that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. They, they didn't know this, obviously, or they wouldn't be saying this. All they knew about Jesus was that he had come from Galilee, and thus, in their minds, he's not qualified to be Messiah. And this is somewhat ironic. Because the people were rejecting Jesus on the basis of things which he, in fact, had fulfilled, were actually true of him. He really was from Bethlehem and the house of David. Jesus, in terms of human nature, fulfilled the expectations. So they're obviously ignorant of these things. And so John, as John points out, that there's a division among the people. Some believe that Jesus should be arrested, while others believe that he was the promised prophet or the Messiah. But, but notice again that no one laid hands on him. Which is to say, no one took him and seized him and arrested him. And again, this is because his time had not yet come. Now the division which existed over Jesus in that day, is no different than it is in our own day, right? I mean, Jesus still divides people today, doesn't he? People have always been divided. In fact, those who are considering becoming Christians should be warned that there are costs to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, doesn't Jesus say, count the costs? There is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus Christ Beloved congregation, you should know the cost of discipleship. 
There are those who will hate you and persecute you and do all kinds of evil against you on account of your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that you and I have not had to experience much of that in our day is a testament to God's mercy upon the church and our nation. But that's not necessarily what's normative in history. And that may change in our day. People are divided about Christ. In fact, we are living in a time in our society where it's a net negative to be a Christian. There's been studies on this. It's a net negative. There's nothing that's um, beneficial these days to being a Christian in the the sense of the world, right? In the sense of how the world views you. Nobody's going to say, like, oh, you're a Christian, so you're a good person, right? They're going to say, oh, you're one of those Christians. that's That's the case for many people. The fact that you haven't experienced wholesale persecution, though, doesn't change the fact that people may hate you. There is, beloved, a cost to discipleship, or there could be a cost to discipleship. All who believe and follow after Christ should count the cost. The desire among some to arrest Jesus and their failure to do so Reminds the reader again that there is, in fact, a warrant out for his arrest. Remember, there's a few different groups here. There's one group that just wants to kill him. There's another group that actually wants to sort of, quote, do things right. They want to arrest him. Try him, perhaps. But there is this warrant out for his arrest. And so there's these officers who had been sent out. And they were, had orders to seize Jesus. And they returned to the chief priest and the Pharisees. And they returned empty-handed. And so there's questions. The Pharisees say, why did you not bring him? They ask, why, why had the temple police not performed their duty? You know, you had one job, and that is go arrest Jesus. You saw him, you talked with him. Why didn't you arrest him? We don't understand the problem here. And so what's their reply? It's fascinating, really. Look at, look at what the, uh, the, 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 the uh, temple police say. They say, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. Fascinating. One commentator put it this way. Their problem lay partly in the fact that they were not brutal thugs, mercenaries trained to perform any barbarous act provided the pay was right. End quote. Remember that these, these officers were drawn from among the Levites. That is to say that they were religiously educated, they were, and they were finding themselves being deeply affected by the words and deeds of Jesus. This was the reason that the population as a whole was divided. Right? They, they go to arrest him, they hear these things, and they're like, wow, you know, like, no one's ever spoken like this before. This, guy, this guy's amazing. Now, this doesn't mean that they were believers. They're just pretty enthralled. Jesus was speaking to their hearts with wisdom and authority and in ways that they had never heard before. Although the guards were not reacting from a place of saving faith, they did speak better than they knew. No mere man had ever spoken as Jesus had. Of course, Jesus is no mere man, is he? He is the Son of God, the incarnate Word, the one whose every word and deed is a revelation of God Himself, the fulfillment of all that was promised by His covenant. And these officers, under the circumstances, simply couldn't bring themselves to act against Jesus. But we also know, as John said numerous times, you know, in Jesus' words, His time and not yet. 
come. God is sovereign over these things. But their failure to act and, uh, and their interest in Jesus brought a further sneering question from the Pharisees. Look at verse 47. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? So the Pharisees mock these guards, not on the ground that they should do their duty, but on the ground that as Levites, they had compromised their theological integrity and they were being seduced by an, by an imposter. I mean, it's, so this is what they're basically saying. Like, hey, Levites, look around. Do you see any Pharisees believing this stuff? I mean, because Pharisees were awesome, right? We don't, we don't fall for stuff like you, you Levites do. Sort of arrogant. Real intellectuals would never fall prey to this sort of thing. And then they look to the crowd... And these Pharisees proceed to call the masses of people ignorant and accursed. It's no wonder that Jesus had such compassion on the crowds who were indeed like sheep without a shepherd. Here's the religious leaders who should be leading the people in truth. And they say, these ignorant people, I mean, they're all accursed. That's not very good ministry. That's not shepherding people. These Pharisees were an arrogant lot. They saw themselves as intellectual superiors, better than everyone else. And that, that's revealed here pretty clearly. In fact, many of the religious leaders and rabbis thought along similar lines. The crowds were seen as ignorant of the things of God and so just simply a lost cause. The religious, the, the, the religious pride ought to remind us of 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It isn't intellectual superiority that gets you into the kingdom, beloved. The wise of this world think that faith in Jesus Christ is foolishness. And they stumble over him. But you and I have nothing to boast in but in Jesus Christ. The wise of the world thought that they were intellectual superiors. Of course, again, there's irony in John. John's filled with irony, by the way. The reader already knows. Remember, they said, you know, does any of the Pharisees, right? Nobody, none of us would believe this stuff. The the irony is we already know about one who does, don't we? There's a particular Pharisee who, in fact, will believe if he hasn't already, and that's Nicodemus. Now, the Pharisees had judged Jesus guilty already, but Nicodemus, who hadn't met with Jesus previously, raises a procedural question. Look at verse 51. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now, this is a question which speaks to justice. It's a procedural question, really, but it's a question which speaks to justice. There isn't anything explicitly stated in the Old Testament which would require someone to speak in their own defense Although that may not be really what Nicodemus is getting at. 
And Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, states that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has commanded or committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So there, in Deuteronomy, in the, in the law of God, we see the, the need for a multitude of witnesses, a plurality of witnesses, not just one. And so it's at least implied that in, the case, in a case like Jesus's, the law would require that a person be examined as to their views and actions before judging them as guilty. The Pharisees had not really spoken with Jesus directly, and Jesus has not been tried in any kind of court of law, and so true justice would demand a fair hearing. This is all Nicodemus is saying. Nicodemus' defense is not a direct defense, it's an indirect defense. He's not saying that Jesus is right, per se, or that all that he has said and done is true. What he is saying is that in order for a judgment to be properly rendered justly, the accused ought to, must have his day in court. Saying that we should hear someone out does not mean that we would agree with them. This is, a, by the way, a problem we seem to have in our own day, right? Is, you know, we're, we're very quick to, to cast judgment without actually hearing all of the evidence. This is, this, is, this is common. One can defend the right of others to speak without defending the content of their speech. Now, Nicodemus is simply stating that Jesus needs to be given a fair hearing before a judgment could be rendered. Something that really won't even happen when he's actually put on trial, by the way. As for the faith of Nicodemus at this point, we can't really be sure, but it seems that he actually does believe. One thing that is apparent is that Nicodemus has a high moral compass. Nicodemus sought for truth. His statements are good and right. But the response of the Pharisees, of whom he was among, shows their level of hostility toward the Lord. Nicodemus simply says, you know, you should listen to him, then make a judgment, and look at how they respond. Verse 52, they say, are you from Galilee too? Are you a Galilean? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus' colleagues are so hostile toward Jesus, they're, so, they're too hostile, they're, they're not even being rational even anymore. They aren't thinking clearly. They are blinded to the truth, and so they mock Nicodemus. And they ask him, are you, I mean, you're going to stand up even to say justice should be served? Are you like one of them? Are you a Galilean? We thought better of you, Nicodemus. How could you possibly be in favor of Jesus? You must also be from that hick seed place where Jesus comes from. There's no other explanation for such a ridiculous statement as that. That's sort of the sense of this. Again, their arrogance is on full display and as they disregard truth and justice. The assumption that they made is that there's no way that anyone could try and defend Jesus. In a sense, they saw him just as they saw the rest of the crowds. These are hopeless people. They're all accursed. Jesus is from the wrong place. Everyone knows the Messiah doesn't come from from Galilee. And of course, the irony is that he doesn't originate there. His, in human terms, his birthplace was Bethlehem. 
He does set the expectation of the Pharisees. They just weren't actually paying attention. In fact, what they should have done is listen to the wisdom that Nicodemus offered them. (laughs) You should find out the truth before you render a judgment. What they should have done is taken Jesus upon his offer of living water. Jesus was offering them salvation. And they were missing out because they were blind to the truth. God's self-revelation is most fully realized in the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. The Word of God incarnate. God the Son took on flesh. John has been making the case throughout his gospel that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that in him there is life. And along the way, John evokes a number of ironies. What has become clear is that people were divided over Jesus. Here is the living God offering living water. He is offering the Spirit. He is offering Himself. Jeremiah 17 says that the Lord is called the fountain of living water. And as in the days of Jeremiah, those in Jesus' day were also forsaking the Lord to their own shame. You see, God was offering Himself to a wayward and rebellious people. Those masses of people that the, the, the arrogant Pharisees had sort of, you know, sort of brushed aside as beyond any kind of hope, Jesus was offering them true hope. Every man, woman, and child is a, has sinned against a holy God. Starting with Adam, our first father, we are all guilty of cosmic treason. And yet, in His great mercy, God has offered to us life. Jesus cried out to the people using very familiar language, language which would remind them of their covenantal heritage. Multitudes of prophets had spoken of the promise with language of water, which of course speaks of life and health and salvation. Jesus cried out on the occasion of a great feast where a water, a water ceremony was being performed and as we've seen, there were some who missed it. The Pharisees are a prime example. The Pharisees who were the might may, may call the theological conservatives, right? These are the people who actually believe the Bible. That's the irony, isn't it? The ones who should have known best were the ones who just didn't get it. This is truly ironic. I mean, you know, we can understand that the Sadducees would miss it. I mean, they were the they were the liberal theologians of their day, right? They didn't even believe they didn't believe the Bible was the word of God. So we would understand they wouldn't get it. But the Pharisees This is the Bible-believing party. And they miss it. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is offering the thirsty and parched soul of this present creation living water which flows in great abundance. He is offering life. He is offering you rest. He is offering you Himself. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Don't trust in your own understanding. Trust in Christ. Know Him. Find satisfaction for your heart and your soul. That which, which is yearning for. Your, your heart and soul is seeking that. It, it, you need to walk with Christ with your whole heart. And not lean on your own understanding. Let's pray. Gracious God, we're thankful. <coughs> 
For Jesus offers us living water. He he offered Himself to us. And I pray, God, for those who don't know Jesus Christ. Those who perhaps know, know about God. They know about Jesus. They have intellectual assent. They know these things to be so. But don't trust in Christ. Don't know you. God, I pray for them. I pray for all those among us here, even as we walk with Christ, that there are times where we are thirsty in our souls because we are not leaning on Christ, we are leaning on our own wisdom. Help us, O God, to fully embrace Christ our Savior. May, May our love for Him grow. May we find our rest and our joy in Him. Thank you, O God, that you have offered yourself for us, that we may have life abundantly, and that we may have rest. As we look forward to that day when our Savior comes again in glory, we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.